1 Samuel 4. Again, we are going to get ambitious and attempt to hit our entire chapter as we did last week with 1 Samuel 3. Title of the sermon, God is not a box. God is not a box. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 1 that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith by its very definition is a reliance upon that which is unseen. That doesn't inherently mean that faith is blind, however, for though faith itself is in something that is unseen, the results of faith are often entirely tangible. Greg told us this morning about his business and how things are going well, and uh, he, he stated that as they pursue the business uh, arrangements in faith, he has seen the tangible results. That as we pursue in faith that which we know God has for us, there are indeed noticeable, tangible results. And, and so though our faith is in the unseen God, that doesn't make it blind Faith. One of the most potent and often used examples of this is a chair. We don't think about chairs when we sit in them, do we? You don't look at every chair that you're about to sit in and inspect that chair for integrity. Now, if you see that that chair is really having issues, you might uh, be unwilling to sit in it. But, but as a rule, you see a chair, you sit in that chair, you plop down with, without any concern really as to whether that chair will hold you up when you put your weight on it. And that being said, while the act of sitting in a chair is one of faith and that you're putting your trust in that which you do not fully understand in order to hold you up, faith receives immediate confirmation, immediate substance when that chair does in fact hold you you immediately recognize that that chair is worthy of your trust, of your reliance, because it did what you trusted it to do. God is unseen. In fact, 1 John 1.18 tells us, no man has seen God at any time. Yet the tangible results of faith in God are undeniable to those who exercise it. But the nature of religious devotion to an unseen God puts us in a place where as humans and even as believers, we run the risk of misplacing our faith. And this can be because of ease. This can be because of expediency. It could be because we get a little bit lazy in our faith. Or it could be just because we do seek something as humans a little more tangible. I'm, if you'll pardon the expression, wrestling with a woman in the jail right now who recognizes... I'm not physically wrestling with her. It's a spiritual battle. Uh, she recognizes that she needs to believe on Christ. But she keeps telling me it's just so hard because I can't see him. It's so hard because he's, he's not visible. He's not tangible. He's not material. She wants to believe in the physical, in the tangible, in the material. And she's having a very hard time getting over that And this is not uncommon. In fact, we would call this very human. We live in a material world. We live uh, completely dictated by material things. We have laws of physics that dictate if we're able to balance, uh, where we're able to go, how fast we're able to go. Um, we can't just fly, but we can harness physics to fly. And because physics is a law, uh, there are laws in physics, there, are, there are, are things that are consistent in physics. We're able to put airplanes in the sky, um, even though we as, as humans don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to fly. Rather, however, than trust in God, oftentimes humans, and then even sometimes we believers, will trust in something tangible, imposing the power of God upon some tangible object. And then, if we're not careful, start to see that object as the actual source of power or blessing. And this is quite regular among those that call themselves religious, as we think perhaps of many, say, in, in Catholicism, who will have a medallion or who will have something on their, their shelf or whatever the case may be, and it will be the medallion of, of some saint 
that they, they're, they're, they're saint or whatever the case may be. And they will wear that desiring to incur favor because of the medallion that they're wearing, literally thinking that the favor will come from the, the object within their possession. When we do this, and there are other, several, obviously, other examples in religions as well, and maybe some in our own lives, which is what we're talking about this morning. When we do this, when we replace God with some object, whether tangible or intangible, two things happen. First, we strip God of the glory and honor that is due unto Him for His power and His goodness in our lives. And we place that honor on something or someone that does not deserve it. Second, we separate the concept of God's blessing from the most essential requirement of scriptural blessing, and that is obedience to God's word. So all of a sudden, people think they're being blessed not because they're obedient, not because they're aligned with God's word and God's will, but because they've put on a medallion or because they um, have a certain ritual or routine that they go through in the morning. And they have imposed, in, in imposing blessing upon something like that, they have stripped God of His glory and they have also stripped the truth out of the reality that God favors those who are in line with His will. Now today we're going to consider a prime example of this and then we're going to seek to apply it to our lives as we close in 1 Samuel. We're going to watch as Israel places all of their hope, all of their faith in an object of religious significance and in doing so they will in fact reject the God who blessed and sanctified that object to begin with. We'll watch as misplaced faith leads to a false sense of security and eventually leads to the destruction of thousands upon thousands of lives. And we'll learn that God is not a box, even if He has blessed that box. God is God, and if we're going to receive from Him that which He promises for us, it must be His way, or not at all. So we step into 1 Samuel chapter 4. Our account begins with Israel in a battle with the Philistines. And I'm not going to, again, like last week, uh, this is a little more narrative, so I'm not going to read to you every verse. I'll encourage you uh, to read through it this afternoon if you would like and meditate upon the principles, but we'll read some of it this morning. The nation of Israel is in a battle against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were the perennial enemies of Israel all throughout Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. They were a coastal nation living on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just west of the nation of Israel. And they were actually, you could call it several regions, several um, divisions of one nation. They had several kings. And each region, each province would have a different king over it. We might even call them different kingdoms, but they united together to form one mighty nation of people. And we find... Uh, that Israel and the Philistines were at war. Israel had pitched beside uh, a place called Ebenezer and the Philistines had pitched in a place called Aphek. These two sites, according to the best that archaeologists can tell us today, would have been about two miles apart. About two miles between the two sites forming in the middle the, the battleground. So the staging ground on either side and the battleground in the middle. Now in verse 2, we see the first recorded battle between the Philistines and the uh, Israelites as far as this particular campaign is concerned. Knowing what we do from chapter 3, the result should not surprise us too much. God had announced to Samuel in chapter 3 that God was against Israel, that Israel had, had disobeyed him, that, that they were not following his word, and that they would be, if you recall, ear-tingling judgment that would be placed upon the nation for their sin. And that would not happen for several hundred years to come. But we see that already God is beginning to pull away His favor, just as He did in the time of the judges, from Israel because Israel was not following the law of Moses, which was the covenant that God had placed upon them. The law of Moses told them that their blessing would be directly linked to their obedience to this law. And blessing and favor were noticeably absent from this battle. In fact, we see there that in the battle, about 4,000 Israelites were killed. 
Now, God's intent in withholding this blessing, as we would expect, it was not God being angry or or vindictive or malicious. It was God's way of showing the nation, causing them to recognize that something was wrong. And then they would find out what sin there was in the camp, what sin there was, they would remove that, and then they would get right with God so that God could begin to bless them again. So the failure, the lack of blessing, the consequences were intended to be a warning or an indication that there was something wrong. We talked in Sunday school this morning uh, as we were talking about idols of the heart, the fact that when you are pursuing your flesh, it's an immediate, when you sin, when you know you've sinned, when you've done something wrong, it's an immediate indicator that spiritually you have yielded something, right? When you are walking in sin, the scriptures tell us in Galatians 5, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if you have fulfilled the lust of the flesh, then what you immediately know is that you weren't walking in the spirit. And that gives you an indication of what you need to do to correct yourself a little bit through God's help. And that was what this was intended to do. Losing this battle was intended to show Israel that there was something wrong. Unfortunately, Israel didn't see it. Their blindness to their own sinfulness caused them to pursue another solution. Notice what the elders of Israel say in verse 3. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. The elders say, we lost today. We're not supposed to lose. We're God's people. We're not supposed to lose. There must be something wrong. What's the solution, Israel? I know. Go get the ark. It'll save us. Do you catch what just happened there? It will save us. They confused the results of the battle that day. They know that God is supposed to give them the victory. But instead of connecting their failure with sin, which is what God all throughout Numbers in Deuteronomy said was the problem. They connected their failure with a lack of God's presence. And so they thought, well, we don't need to deal with the sin. Let's just deal with the presence issue. What is the manifest presence of God on the earth at this time? It's the Ark of the Covenant. I've got a great idea, the elders say. Let's go get that Ark. Let's bring it to the battle. So instead of repenting of their sin, getting right with God, aligning themselves with Him, they sought some material, tangible means of, if I may put it this way, manipulating God into blessing them. God, your ark is here now. You've got to bless us. God, we've got something here that you like. You wouldn't want that to fall into enemy hands. You better spare us. And even worse, they're actually not even trusting God, huh? We talked about the end of that verse. They didn't say, bring the ark that God may save us. They said, bring the ark that it may save us. So misguided was their understanding of God's character that they began to attribute the presence of the ark as the means by which they would be blessed. That it itself would be the savior of the nation. It it was becoming an idol. They were placing the ark of the covenant which God had sanctified above God himself and the ark of the covenant was becoming an idol. Now, God does not compete with other gods. Jehovah does not compete. He doesn't need to compete. They're wood. They're stone. It's a box. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. Now, God had sanctified that box, but it was just a box. And God's not going to compete with a box. But the elders of Israel were so backward, so misguided in their understanding of God's covenant with them that they thought merely this box being there would save them. They confused the God of the box with the box itself. Whereas the box was holy because of the God that was holy that, represented, that was represented by the box, the elders of Israel began to see the box as holy in and of itself. Instead of trusting in the God of the box, they made the box their God and sought for the presence of the box to save them rather than seeking the presence of God. See, and God's presence would have been there if they had repented of their sin. But we know from Isaiah 59, God says, Behold, 
The hand of the Lord is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. But your iniquity has separated between you and your God. And your sin has hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. What has, what has always, throughout history, separated us from God? It's been sin. We can't just go get the box and expect the box to reconcile us to God. Nor certainly can we just go get the box and expect the box to do what God should do. Well, verse 4 tells us that the people sent. They sent from Ebenezer to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was located, to get the Ark of the Lord. And at that time, we know who was in charge, right? Hophni and Phinehas were in charge. We've talked about them and their wickedness over the past weeks. Normally, what what I would expect to happen, if I were reading this and, and there were a good priest in charge, I would have expected the elders of Israel to send to the priest, say, hey, we need the box. We need the Ark of the Covenant. We had a bad day today in the battle. We need the Lord's presence. We need this box to come and save us. And a good priest would have said, excuse me, no, absolutely not. Get out of here. How dare you take the Ark of God's covenant with Israel and use it as some sort of luck charm in order to manipulate God into giving you the victory. I'll tell you what, elders of Israel, get your heart right with God and then watch him work. That's what a good priest would have said, but Hophni and Phinehas are not good priests. They are as carnal and misguided as the rest of the nation. So, uh, you know, these guys had lost their moral compass in the woods a long time ago. It fell out somewhere and they're not getting it back. They had no better understanding of God and His expectations than anyone else in Israel. So they gladly volunteer and they say, well, we are the priests of the Lord and no one can carry the ark but the priests of the Lord, so why don't we carry it out to battle for you, right? And so they take this ark and they carry it out physically being there. Well, here we go, right? The ark of the covenant is there. Not only is the ark of the covenant there, but God's high priests are there as well. God has to bless this battle, right? The ark's there. The priests are there. The ark will save us. The priests. This is good stuff. So the ark comes to the camp. It's brought to Ebenezer in verse 5. And it's an immediate morale booster. The ark is here. We're saved. The ark of God is present. It will save us. It will save us. It has the power to defeat the Philistines. And the scriptures tell us that they cried aloud. And the cry was so great at the presence of the ark coming into the camp in Ebenezer that the scriptures tell us the earth rang. It literally, the earth shook with the echo of their cries. In fact, verse 6 tells us that the Philistines heard the shout. How far away were they again? two miles away, and the Philistines heard the shout. Now, we, <laughs> there's about to be 40,000 people that die in this battle from Israel. So we know that there was a very large number of people that were, were there. And they cried, and the earth shook, and the Philistines heard this great shout. And they perhaps had some scouts looking uh, at the camp in Israel and such. And so the scriptures tell us in verse 6 that they understood, they came to recognize that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Well, the, the Philistines' response, uh, response to the ark coming into the camp is actually quite fascinating. The nation was not ignorant of God's power or what God had done in years past. In fact, verses 7 and 8 tell us that the Philistines were terrified that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp because they knew that God had brought Israel out of Egypt. They, the whole world knew what had happened when Israel was brought out of Egypt. It had been several hundred years at this point since Israel had been brought out. But these Philistines still remember hearing, they heard stories about what God did to those Egyptians. The Egyptians were the world power and they were completely pillaged and destroyed by the God of Israel. God brought them out with a mighty hand, parted the Red Sea, gave them manna, uh, allowed them to conquer the land through Joshua, the parting of the Jordan, the destruction <coughs> excuse me, of Jericho, right? I mean, Jericho, that great city, just fell flat at the shout of the voices of the people of God through the blessing of God. They'd heard it all and they knew that the God of Israel was not a God to be trifled with. But see, the problem was they didn't associate the God of Israel with Israel itself. And the reason being, because Israel didn't follow God very well. 
Whereas an association should have been so close between Jehovah God and Israel that for a person to go to war against Israel was to know that they were going to war against Jehovah. That wasn't the case. To go to war against Israel was just to fight Israel. But now the Philistines were afraid because they perceived that Jehovah had come to help them. See, most pagans, most religions believe that God comes and goes based upon action, right? Most religions believe that God blesses and curses based upon action. And in the Old Testament with the Mosaic Law, that was even the case. And so the Philistines thought, okay, whatever it is, the Israelites have invoked something that have awakened or brought their God to their side. Ironically, whereas Israel's rejoicing was over the fact that, a, fact that a box had been brought into the camp, the Philistines' fear was legitimate. Their fear was not about the box, was it? Israel's rejoicing was about the box. The Philistines' fear was about Jehovah God. Oftentimes, and it's unfortunately the case, it's lamentable and somewhat ironic that the unbelieving world sometimes has a better reverence for God than, than God's own people. That the unbelieving world sometimes has a greater understanding of God's power and holiness than the church itself. That we as God's people are so busy trying to uh, live our way but, but credit God or, or live our way and give God lip service that we have to find excuses for why God doesn't bless us. Or we have to find excuses as to why things don't go well. So we have to back off on our theology, whereas the unbelieving world says, well, if your God is all-powerful, if your God says He'll provide for you, then why don't you trust Him? And the Christian world goes, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just not, you wouldn't understand, it's not that simple. If, if God's all-powerful, I can just trust Him. What? what? Huh? It's not, not that easy. Oftentimes, the unbelieving world and their simplicity has a greater understanding of the character of God than sometimes we do. Well, the Philistines were not to be trampled, though. A few guys, at least in their midst, said, we're not going to let this ark shake us. Someone didn't buy it. Why should they cower because of rumors that God had come into the camp? Because of a God that hadn't been doing anything like this for a long time, and who's to say he's back? So literally... The men in Israel said, Be strong. Quit yourselves like men. Grow up. Be men. Oh, you Philistines, don't be servants to those Hebrews. They've served you. Don't, don't be servants back to them. Let's fight this battle. Quit yourselves like men and fight. Get up. Get your armor on. Let's go fight this battle. So the Philistines, they, they were a little bit afraid, but they, they got themselves up on their feet to fight this battle. And verses 10 and 11 tell us that the battle was fought. The Philistines fought. Israel was smitten and fled every man into his tent and there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel, excuse me, 30,000 footmen. I said 40 before, 30,000 footmen. And as we continue through the text, the scriptures go on to tell us in verse 11, I'm sorry it's not on there, uh, the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So Hophni and Phinehas are dead. We knew that was happening, right? Uh, God had promised that to Eli. That as a sign of the judgment upon Eli and his house, that his sons would both fall in one day. That was found in 1 Samuel 2. And we knew that Israel was being judged. That was found in 1 Samuel 3. So Hophni and Phinehas are now dead. God has shown himself true. Israel trusted in a box instead of repenting of their sin. And the box did about as much for them as the box could possibly do. 30,000 people died that day because they trusted in the box. Now, the events following the defeat are quite tragic. I'm going to summarize them. You have verse 22 up there. I'm just going to summarize verses 12 through 22 to a lesser degree. A messenger out of Benjamin runs to Shiloh where the mostly blind 98-year-old Eli is sitting and waiting for news. And the scriptures tell us that he is particularly interested in news about the Ark of the Covenant. He, if the scriptures, if the intonation of the text is, 
is uh, anywhere near, or the implication of the text, excuse me, is anywhere near accurate. He was not a, a fan of the ark being taken. Eli knew some things about God, far more than his sons did. He was not a fan of the ark being taken. He was very concerned about the Ark of the Covenant. But it wasn't his decision. He wasn't high priest. His sons were. His sons never listened to him anyway. So they took the Ark. So Eli is waiting and the messenger comes and he has rent his clothes and he is weeping and he says that we have been slain before our enemies on this day. We've fallen before our enemies. 30,000 men have been killed. And Eli says, okay, what about the Ark? And your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And he says, okay, what about the Ark? And he says, the Ark of God was taken. And verse 18 tells us that when Eli heard about the ark, when he made mention of the ark, that he, Eli, fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. So Eli was very large and he was old and his bones were brittle. And when he heard that the ark of God was taken, he fell back in his seat. He fell on his neck his neck broke and he died. He had been judging Israel for 40 years at that point. In verses 19 through 22, we read that Phineas's wife, Phineas was the eldest of Eli's two sons, of the, the two high priests, was pregnant at the time with their second child. Their oldest child was named Ahitub. And this is their second child. And when she heard, and the scriptures tell us, when she heard in verse 19 the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead. Notice the order there. The ark, then the father-in-law, then her husband. Interesting order of, of uh, ideas there. She bowed herself in travail and pains came upon her. She went into labor because of the emotional stress of that situation. And the scriptures tell us that it was hard labor and that she in fact died in giving birth to her child on that day, but her child lived. And just before she died, verse 20 tells us the midwife or whoever it was said, fear not, thou hast born a son. And she, that would be the midwife because the mother didn't answer. The midwife named the child Ichabod saying, the glory is departed from Israel. Ichabod literally meaning in Hebrew, no glory. The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. This, this account is really about the ark of God. It's not about Eli. It's not about his sons. Those things are there. But it's about the ark of God and about it being taken and seeing the power of God as we continue through the text. But I'd like us to really consider what's going on spiritually here. Israel is suffering from the consequences of being out of fellowship with God and has so deeply lost sight of who God is and what He expects that they assumed simply because the ark would be among them that they would be spared. Their response to their own sinfulness was shallow and it was indeed, as we've said, an attempt to manipulate God. Now with that in mind, as we think about that spiritual over shadowing of events, I'd like us to consider a different response of Israel in a time much earlier. The time just after Jericho fell, when Israel, under the leadership of um, Joshua, thank you. <laughs> Joseph was the only, the only name that came, and it's on the next slide, so I should have looked. But uh, Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, was about to engage in a battle against the city of Ai. In Joshua chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Jericho has been destroyed. God explicitly commanded them not to take anything from the city. The city was consecrated to God. God says, burn it all, don't take anything. You may not have anything from the city. One of the men, however, named Achan, took gold, silver, and clothing that remained, goodly Babylonianish garments and such, and did so against God's will. He, he took them, he hid them. Nobody knew he had taken them. The nation didn't know it. Joshua commanded a group of men, a small group of men, a couple thousand men, to go up and to take the city of Ai. It's a small city. Shouldn't be a problem. After all, Jericho just fell. We ought to be fine here. Now, the battle went very poorly for the men. 
They fled before the enemies in Ai and 36 men were killed. You say 36, that's not too bad if you think about uh, the kind of battles that would go on in that day. Well, yes, but see, the, the fact of the matter is when God is leading the charge, how many men were supposed to die? Zero were supposed to die. For 36 men to die was a big, big deal. And perhaps in, a, in the days of, of Hophni and Phinehas, 4,000 people die and they say, hmm, okay, well... We need a box. But 36 people die in the day of Joshua, and this is a big, big deal. Look at how Joshua responds in verses 6 through 9 of Joshua 7. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord. He's falling before the ark of God until the eventide. He fell on his face and he stayed there on his face until evening. He and the elders of Israel and put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast... Thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Would to God we had been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? God, how we can't do this without you. If you are not with us, then all of these people are going to destroy us. We're in a bad state here, God. We've come over Jordan. We fought this battle and it, Jericho went so well and now Ai is not going well. And, and if you depart from us, God, we've got nothing left. What, is, what, what can we do? What is wrong? Why did you not bless this battle? Why did we flee before our enemies? Well, God responds. And in verse 10, Ironically, uh, verse 10 is not up on the screen, but, but God literally looks at Joshua and, and he, he responds by saying, get on your feet. This is not me. I haven't changed. It's not me that's changed. It's sin in the camp. Notice what he says in verse 11 through 13. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the, uh, destroy the accursed from among you. Up! Sanctify the people and say, Sanctify yourselves against the morrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. At least Joshua fell on his face and said, God, what's wrong and how can we fix it? And God said, If you're going to ask, I'll tell you. There's sin. There's sin among you. Get it out and you will be back in fellowship with me. There it is. You can't stand before your enemies until you get rid of the sin. See, the problem in the days of Eli and of Hophni and Phinehas was no different than the problem facing Joshua. In, the, in the, both of these battles, they couldn't stand against their enemies. Both times Israel fled. Both times men died. The difference wasn't the problem the difference was the solutions. In Joshua's day, he fell down on his knees until evening. He put dust on his head and he begged God to tell him why. And God told him and they dealt with it. In Eli's day, in Hophni and Phinehas' day, they brought a box. Thought the box could save them. As we apply these truths to our lives today, I want us to be careful circumspect, if you will. The church is not Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. We don't have a physical covenant with God that promises us physical and material health, wealth, and blessings if we obey Him. We, we see all throughout Scripture the reality that suffering does come upon the righteous. We see uh, uh, that, that there is illness and that there is suffering and that there is um, um, persecution that comes upon the righteous. But the parallels between the physical covenant that God made with Israel and the spiritual relationship that we have with God through the new covenant are striking in their resemblance. And that's because God, when he made this covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant, there was a spiritual aspect to it. And when he promised the new covenant, the covenant whereon he would write the law of God upon their hearts, where he would do for them what they could not do for themselves in obeying the law, 
God has allowed us to take part in that new covenant. Spiritual blessing is without a doubt still conditioned upon obedience. I'm not telling you today that if you obey God that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If Israel obeyed, the nation would be physically blessed. If Israel disobeyed, the nation would be physically cursed. Every aspect of Israel's physical prosperity was dependent upon God's blessing. Now we as believers in a spiritual sense, if we obey, if we obey God, if we obey God's word, he maintains fellowship. The believer maintains fellowship with God. God gives him victory over sin. God gives him spiritual effectiveness. If a believer disobeys God, he loses fellowship with God and loses the capacity to be spiritually effective. Every aspect of a believer's spiritual prosperity is dependent upon God's blessing, is dependent upon righteousness. And so what we can do here, we can't make a one-to-one comparison, but what we can do is we can show how these two topics interrelate. We can take the physical blessings of Israel and we can use them as a template with which we understand our spiritual relationship with God. That we are in a covenant relationship with God. And all throughout the New Testament, we find that spiritual blessing is rooted in obedience. That fellowship is rooted in a right standing before God. James 1, verses 22 to 25 tell us this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He sees himself in a mirror, he sees who he is, and then he, he moves on forgetting what he looked like. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, what does it say? This man shall be blessed in his deeds. Spiritual blessing, spiritual blessing, spiritual effectiveness the ability to understand, uh, to, to walk in fellowship with God. And as we talked last week about the will of God, understanding the will of God demands proper fellowship with God. You won't be able to hear God, as we talked about hearing God, right? Not audibly, but we talked about that. You won't be able to hear Him if you're out of fellowship with Him. So your ability to physically live this life walk the direction that God wants you to is deeply dependent upon your spiritual health. And your spiritual health is deeply dependent upon obedience to God. James says, if you want to be blessed in your deeds, be a doer, not just a hearer. A hearer doesn't get it done. You've got to be a doer of the word. So in the Mosaic Covenant, they received physical blessings or cursings. In the New Covenant, we receive spiritual power or spiritual loss. The second point, as we compare Israel and and their failure with the believer today, is motivation. Both the Israel's Mosaic Covenant and our New Covenant are intended to be motivated by the redemptive love of God through Christ, in our case, and the redemptive love from Egypt in Israel's case. The nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant was asked to be obedient to God in humble response to God's love as it was reflected in the fact that he brought them out of Egypt and he was going to save them. He was going to bless them. The nation was in bondage. God came to them. God delivered them. God brought them out. God promised them a nation. God promised them health. God promised them victory. And they ought to serve him in light of his redemption. It's the same thing spiritually in our hearts and in our lives. Under the new covenant, we as believers serve God, are obedient to God in humble response to God's love for us as reflected in the redemption of bondage from sin through Christ. We don't serve God as an obligation to get to heaven, nor did Israel. We serve God to experience that right relationship manifest into blessing. Israel, the people in Israel were saved by grace through faith just as we are today. It was never a works-based salvation. There never has been one. Romans, Galatians tell us Abraham was saved by faith. Our memory work for the month tells us that it is not of works, 
but of faith. But blessing is another matter altogether. Blessing comes through obedience. With Israel, physical monetary blessing was promised for obedience. No sickness in the land. No enemy could stand before them. Wealth and comfort was all promised for Israel if they would but obey God's Mosaic Covenant. For a believer today, when we align ourselves with God, motivated by that which God has already done for us in redeeming us, and we thus live as God has asked us to live, spiritual blessing is the result. Romans chapter 6, verses 18 through 19 tell us this, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness and to holiness. With the same fervor and, and, and love and devotion that you once served sin, now that you are a child of Christ, Recognize your redemption and serve God with that same passion, with that same fervor, to serve God with all your heart. That's God's intent. And God says that when you do that, you will bear spiritual fruit. You will be spiritually blessed. You will become effective for Him. And see, this is why this is so much better than what Israel had. Israel was promised physical blessings. Jesus said in Matthew 5, lay not up, tre- or, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, lay not up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As you pursue God in obedience, spiritual reward is building up in heaven. Now, will that have tangible benefits upon your life? Yes. If, you're righteous, if you live a righteous life, at least in our culture, things are going to go pretty well for you as of now, most likely. I mean, doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise, but um, you'll have integrity and, and, and you'll be able to maintain a job because you'll be honest. And you know, so, some things will work out better for you because you're an honest and, and righteous person. But the parallel is that God promised physical blessing to Israel. And as we obey God in the same way, we amass spiritual blessing in heaven. Third and final comparison this morning. We could make more. Israel was promised through the Mosaic Covenant physical blessings and cursings, motivated by the redemptive love of God from physical bondage, intended that they would be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. The world sees the physical blessings and says, wow, your God is something special. I want it. And God has elected the same thing for the church today. That we would be men and women and children rightly related to God so that we could show the world how to be rightly related to God. In the Old Testament, when enemies came, they would fall before Israel. There was no disease. They would be happy and comfortable people. In the New Testament, the church is intended to be a spiritual a spiritually separated entity. We're not to be a city set on a hill in that we as a church are supposed to separate from the world and not be near them and then they come to us and see us and say, wow, I want to be a part of that. We're supposed to be intermingled with the world. In the world, but not of the world. And Romans chapter 12, verse 21 tells us that we are intended to overcome evil with good in this world. That while the unbelieving world is mired in deep emotional and physical consequences of their sin, God desires that we would be a people of spiritual joy and gladness and contentment. And as we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God, the righteousness that is found in Christ overflows in us and that cannot be manufactured. And the world sees it and wants what we have. To be rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God. So, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he tells us this in verses 9-12, through 12, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." Dearly beloved, he continues, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
Having your conversation honest. Conversation meaning actions. Honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is God's intent. We obey God. The world sees our good works. We combat evil with good. We overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. And the world cannot help but recognize that there's something real and genuine and powerful that they simply do not have. And as we consider these three parallels this morning between two people groups, Israel and the physical covenant, and then the church and our spiritual covenant, being very careful to assert that we are not Israel, think about what we considered, those spiritual truths that we considered in 1 Samuel 4. We looked at two instances where the nation of Israel met with unexpected physical failure with two very different responses. Joshua met with physical favor, begged God for help, fell down on his knees. They figured out where the sin was. They got the sin out of their lives and they received great blessing once again. In 1 Samuel 4, the elders replaced repentance of sin with an attempt to manipulate God with a box. And the second fall was worse than the first. The first time they lost, they lost 4,000. The second time they lost, they lost 30,000. The second fall was worse than the first. And ladies and gentlemen, as we parallel these truths, I speak directly to believers this morning. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have never come to the point where you've recognized that you're a sinner, that you're on your way to hell, that you cannot get to heaven on your own, that you cannot earn favor with God on your own, that you need Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself and you place your full faith and trust in the reality that Jesus lived upon this earth, that He is God, that He died on the cross for your sins to pay the penalty for your sins, that He rose again the third day in victory over death and hell so that you can be saved from your sins. If you have never accepted that truth for yourself, never accepted Jesus as your Savior, uh, I would encourage you uh, to, to get your questions answered and to make that decision. But I speak to believers today as we parallel these truths. How do you respond to spiritual failure? When you see yourself filled with anger and you know that God doesn't want you angry. When you see yourself filled with lust and you know God does not want you to be filled with lust. When you find yourself full of pride knowing that God hates pride. When you lie knowing that God hates lies, when you disobey your parents, knowing that God wants you to honor your father and mother, when you uh, pursue absolute materialism, knowing that, that God says, lay up your treasure in heaven, when you see sin in your life, as we mentioned earlier, you know, you can know that in some way there's something wrong spiritually. Something isn't right. Something isn't normal because sin isn't normal when we see the manifestations of sin coming out of us, that's, that's like Israel losing the battle. Wait a minute, I just lied. There's something wrong. Just like Israel said, wait a minute, people just died. There's something wrong between me and God. I just lied. There's something wrong between me and God because I just lied. There's something wrong here. And just as with Israel, we can respond in different ways to sin. We can seek to conjure up a solution using religious thoughts or ideas or philosophies to try to make ourselves feel like a better person. To try to somehow excuse away our sin. Or we can seek God's face, fall down on our knees, repent of our sin and be spiritually restored to a place of fellowship with God. And just like Israel could repent of their sin and become immediately restored to favor with God to win the battle, so too we can win the battle if we will trust in the Lord. But it's my concern that all too often we do the former instead of the latter. It's my concern that we're far more comfortable as Christians justifying our sin than we are admitting our sin. That we are far too busy enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season to be inconvenienced by the demand of repentance and obedience. 
that more often than not, when we see that we're not living the results that God has promised, when the fruit of the Spirit is not being borne out, when we're instead um, manifesting the works of the flesh, as Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21 describe the works of the flesh in our lives, when we see those things, we're more prone to run to a Hophni and to a Phineas and uh, find out how the Hophni's and Phineas's of Christianity can excuse our sin. Men who are eager to tell us that the problem isn't sin or false worship, but the problem is just that we need a spiritual pick-me-up. The problem is that you don't, you don't see yourself as a good enough person. The problem is that you, you, you don't uh, you don't have the spiritual wind behind your sails. And they try to convince you that you're okay with God because after all, everyone does it. Because after all, He's a God of grace. And, and it's true. We're all sinners and God is a God of grace. But that's not an excuse for sin. That's a blessed... <laughs> uh, uh, that's the gospel. That's, that's blessed good news because none of us can be perfect. But when we see a problem spiritually in our lives, if we run to the Hophni's and Phineas's of Christianity and they say, here, let me give you a box. And this box is going to make you feel really good about yourself and you're going to be on, on a spiritual high because you've got the box only to fall into the depths of that valley. And oftentimes the last failure is worse than the first. So what do these Hophni's and Phineas's do? What arcs do they give us? What spiritual pick-me-ups do we see? Well, we see the conferences. We see the concerts. We see the, the newest book that you need to read, right? Something that will carry us, that will put us on a spiritual plateau and we live our spiritual lives like this. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Spiritual high, spiritual low. High morale boost, falling into sin. And God doesn't want us doing that. God wants us on a consistent plane of growth as we, when we sin, recognize our sin, repent, get right with Him, recognizing that sin, is, it, sin means something is wrong in your life. Sin means something isn't going right. Find it. Repent of it. And get right with God again. When we aren't where we should be spiritually, when our Christian life doesn't look like the life that God says it should be in the New Testament, a life full of joy and a virtue of contentment and peace, a life exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We need to be like Joshua and fall down on our knees and ask God what's wrong and how can I make it right. And if we come to God with an honest heart of repentance and submission, He will show us. And then we can get it right. But how do we respond? Do we respond like the elders in Eli's day? Do we run to Hophni and Phinehas and look for a box to try to get us through? Or do we do what God has called us to do? Seek out the sin. Root out the sin. So that we can experience all the blessings that God has for us spiritually in this life. Let's uh, close in prayer.